Now we don't have any value. We in here, boys. All right. Hello, everybody. It's your uh, death. It's a bonus death sentence. Are you excited? Um, so obviously we recently covered uh, me, Eden and Gareth recently covered. God, what was the book? God, I just pure and essay. There we go. It's like I just we just recorded it, too. I'm uh, been having a week, you know, love that. Uh, but today I have uh, two of my friends. Uh, one is a returning guest from the show, um, Trevor from Putrescene. Trevor, say hello now. <laughs> hello. It took him a bit, but he did it. Uh, and Yvonne from Cosmoger, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, it is a way to pronounce it. And hello. How, are, how do you pronounce it? I mean, we we never really agreed on one. It was just always written down. In my head, I say like Cosmic Gear, but any any pronunciation is valid. Okay. So it's sort of like a fantasy uh, fantasy character name in the sense that they're not meant to be said with your mouth. They're meant to be read with your eyes. I mean, it's not like we're on stage announcing ourselves, so we haven't had to cross that bridge yet. No, that's depressing. That's depressing. <laughs> uh yeah so we have them on today because they just put out a split lp together do you guys consider it a split lp or i would you did when you wrote it up that's right that's right a way to let the cat out of the bag so yeah i uh the other reason (laughs) the other reason that they're on is uh normally it's a big no-no in like music critical circles to actually like professionally write about people that you're friends with um because there's already a lot of nepotism in the uh the music world and you know everyone has to do their own little part to cut down on it but the benefit of having uh my own podcast is i can actually do whatever the hell i want um so uh through that not only was i able to uh, actually professionally work with uh trevor and yvonne which is really cool because I've been, we had Putrescene on a while back, um, j- just because we were all, uh, me and Gareth were fans of the music, and then I've since become pretty good friends with Trevor. And unfortunately, that meant that I can't really professionally tell people that his band is sick, um, which sucks, because uh, the band is very sick. Uh, it is absolutely like uh, my shit when it comes to death metal. It's like you made the music for me, um, but yeah, we being do. Able that's, to that's act- the secret. That's good. That's good. I'm, I'm the ideal audience, um, for any musician is make it so that I like it. And then, uh, then I'm the happiest. Um, and no one, I'm, uh, no one else matters. Uh, I'm the main character of the world. Um, but yeah, so I wasn't able to actually do much in the way of actually professionally highlighting 
um, the music of friends, which is obviously a big frustration if you have friends that you respect and also like their work. Um, so it was a real pleasure to be able to actually like do the promo copy for you guys and uh, like get to hear the record ahead of time and then actually do do something to professionally help out. Um, All right, yeah, interview I mean, done. Yeah, we we nailed it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I mean, it, it was it was equally enjoyable to have you involved. I am less stringent on the writing side about, like, basically, I I, I see it like, oh, what happened? What? I guess it's just I guess it's just the two of us now. No. Nope. Um, well, is Trevor not there? Not for me. Oh no! Nope. It says he's offline. Well, anyway, yeah, you keep going. Maybe yeah, Trevor will pop back in. Say, uh, the the way I've scoped it out in my head is. If we were strangers, would I still think this was good enough to cover? And if the answer to that is an honest yes, then I will do it regardless. Um, with respect to your approach being valid as well. I mean, to be fair, I, I, so that's sort of the other thing is Yvonne and I have known each other for a bit from prior to this because we both um, wrote for Invisible Oranges together for a stretch uh, and met. I don't think we actually met that way, but that definitely helps solidify the. Uh, um, no, I mean, I, I think we 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 had only actually started talking when um, me and Frank put together our gaming group. Until then, it was just like orbits of knowledge. Yeah. Um, Twitter interactions. Yeah, we had and, overlapping. Uh, I think you you had you had maybe done a little bit. I don't think you you actually did any editing. Um, mostly, it was always Ian or Andrew or John messing around in my my Google Doc. Uh, yeah, and so that's sort of the other the other bit of connection is that uh, for the past number of years, basically since around the start of the pandemic, I think it was a little bit before the start of the pandemic, but it was around then at least. Uh, me, uh, Yvonne, Trevor. Um, our friend Will, who's been in a bunch of different bands that we've, we've actually had Will on Death Sentence uh, very early on as well. And then uh, Frank, the front man of half, have been in a tabletop uh, group for a number of years now. And uh, we're about to be in just a few minutes. That's right. That's right. That's why I uh, uh, gotta, gotta make sure that we delay that as much as possible to keep if there's any podcasting tradition it's that there's always a technical failure of one or more kinds right when you need to record <laughs> everything works fine until the moment that you press record and then something breaks and you have to spend a while fixing it and likewise wow. any of our listeners who have done tabletop stuff know that the one sure guiding star uh or the two guiding stars of tabletop role-playing is that campaigns don't finish they stop uh, and the second one is that someone is always late for some reason. Beautiful. Like Trevor's been missing the past several sessions due to, I don't know, fucking off, working. Started school. Terrible. I'm dying. Yeah. Well, I know at least a few of those were because Future Scene actually had to practice in order to perform their live shows. <laughs> 
Yeah, and sometimes you know, we, we do practice a little. It's it's uh the kind of music, especially what you can hear are Oh, this is called the Segway Boys. Um, especially what you can hear on these uh so Future Scene actually put out two split LPs, um accidentally on the same day one with uh yvonne yvonne's band cosmoger and another with um another friend's band called adzes adze yeah. i don't one adzes. Adzes. adzes it's a it's a type of hand tool i know that but i don't i'm i'm good at reading not at talking um did not get my degree in communication that's for goddamn sure um but yeah, happened to have both of them release on the same day, despite them being recorded almost a year apart, um, just due to the flukes of everyone, every independent musician's favorite thing, um, uh, production delays, especially in uh, the post-COVID world, where you can hand in a record and be like, cool, the whole fun of being an independent musician is like, we can turn this around immediately and like get physical oh, stuff released. And they're like, no, no, not anymore. No. <laughs> Trevor, Trevor, when was our uh, split done? It, it had to have been because we were talking about getting it released in time for end of year lists last year. And you thought, well, we need three months. So it's a little early. So it had to have been around October so just about a year ago we were ready to <laughs> get it launched and that's I mean with everything done um, we had recorded probably a little earlier um, and been working on it for a while yeah this thing got real real moldy <laughs> <laughs> like, if this if this was cheese like a wine you'd be very happy if it's music that you've been you know now, I don't even know if I relate to these songs anymore. It's kind of like that, you know? Uh, I think anyone in our crowd who deals with writing, especially submission to, um, to like to journals for publication and magazines and stuff will absolutely feel that one. There's such a, there's such an asinine level of delay that's just baked into the process at this point. That had been part of the writing world since forever. Like the the whole point of why writers were excited about blogs was suddenly, when I'm done with a piece, I press publish and it's out. Rather than when I'm done with a piece, I mail it to someone, and then after several weeks, it gets there and they edit it. Then they mail it back. Then I have to do the edits. Then, um, which for whatever fucking reason, a lot of journals still do in the email world. Um, which is insane and it makes me feel like I'm insane and it drives me insane. Um, so I'm glad to know that now musicians of an independent caliber can also suffer in this way. That's very good. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it was by choice because at any point Trevor and I could have just said, you know, of course, um, yeah. collectively with the other bandmates, uh, fuck it. Let's just, uh, let's just drop it. But no, we wanted to have tapes and we didn't want to pay for them ourselves. So that, you know, <laughs> that, that once you start bringing in other parties uh, because you want to, it, it sort of is and isn't your fault at the same time yeah. that you're sitting on your hands. I mean, it's sort of the natural. I think that's a part of this that most people who aren't involved in the arts and it, it happens in all different spaces of the arts. But a lot of people who aren't involved in that part don't really get to see is that like 
production involves the schedule of every single person whose hand may touch what you're doing from an artist to a layout designer to tape production to shipping to like every single person it has to fit into when's their next available time to handle it then they hand it off to the next person and it's i remember when coheed's new record came out um they originally had a release date of sometime and they wound up pushing it back something like five months despite the record being completely done um because the vinyl wasn't going to be out and they wanted the box set to come out that's just the whole thing yeah but i saw a bunch of people who were mad about it and everyone who was in the world of music was like no no you don't understand you you do not like it yeah and and it's not even the the size of the artist i uh, a couple months ago ordered a caroline polachek vinyl that was a pre-order supposed to release in august and i haven't seen any communication about when that's coming so i emailed them yesterday i was like hey i was just wondering you know it because they took the product page down it's just gone yeah and they said yeah there's a delay we actually don't know when it's coming but if you hear anything let us know it might be lost (laughs) in the void like yeah sure thing (laughs) <laughs> I fucking love this stuff. It's uh especially when like there's sort of this myth that people hold on to, I think. That a very outdated myth at this point. Um that the whole point of like independent art as we saw from like underground musicians of like the 40s who'd go in and do like quick um there used to be these phone booth recording uh studio things called I think story tones or something like that. Um, Neil Young actually a couple of years ago cut a record in one just as like a fun little thing but you'd go in and just play into a big cone and it would give you a, like a lacquer like a shellac record of what you just played um, but then you had you know underground music in the 60s you had you know the rise of, of um, punk and independent uh, music uh, production during the 60s into the 70s Obviously, that was sort of the big blow up thing for punk bands in the 80s. The whole vibe of that, the whole the whole thought process was like, oh, you don't want to deal with this big machine so you can just do it yourself and then Xerox stuff and mail stuff out to people. And uh, this is the kind of stuff where it can't help but make you some kind of commie or anarchist because you see how uh, these processes get integrated into bigger and bigger systems normally through tech companies and then all of a sudden, it's like, what do you mean my do-it-yourself project has a built-in five-month delay? What the fuck is the point? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, right, cause, you, I was just going to say, um, you still can if you have, if you want to just buy a bunch of blank tapes and then rip them at home. And, you know, it's, it's still 1981 in your heart. If you can draw the art yourself, if you have people in your orbit who are willing to mix and master at a quality that you enjoy, right? But yeah. most of us can't handle all those things by ourselves. And so that's when the thing that you were talking about where um, once one additional ingredient enters, you know, let's say the, the mixing bowl, you need to wait on, on their uh, availability. And that's all without... Uh, trying to get other people to write some words about what you've just made. Because that's yeah. the other light. Oh, you go on. Oh, Drop well, me. I was just going to say, I don't know if we mentioned this when we were on the first time, but our first EP um, that Tridroid put out, we picked mm-hmm. this really cool green 
you know, like slimy, gross green for the yeah. tapes. And even though, you know, everything about working with Tridroid for those first two releases was just absolutely amazing. We love working with the smaller label and, uh, and everything that, you know, Christine was able to do for us. And even working with the smaller independent tape label, uh, it's still, there's only, I think, two factories in the world now that produce tapes. So our uh, EP release was delayed because Billie Eilish put out um, one of her albums on a green tape and we're in that same, there's no way to get out of that loop because there's only so many people producing them. Though yep. a, uh, if Billy's listening, we are still down for a collab. Hit us up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's sort of, that's sort of the other end of the music world that like every, every single person bemoans it, whether it's someone who does music or someone who writes critically about music or someone who does journalism about music, all these, like someone who does promo for music, all these slightly different, but overlapping spaces is um, for the past couple of years, I've had uh, a column through consequence of sound called mining metal. The original title was thunder underground, which is a way better title, but there's some mm -hmm. dumb fucking podcast with that name. I'll fight by the way. If I find you who has that podcast name, I'll fight you and I'll take it back. And then that will be our name again. So, you know, you're, it's on site with you guys. I don't know what you do, but it's on site. Also great Ozzy Osbourne song, by the way. Um, but as part of that, it's like we highlight a certain amount of metal records that are released on labels below a certain threshold of notability. Uh, and we do eight records a month. And every month, I comb through a database of something like between two to 500 albums for one month. Like, so the, the ability for music to just disappear, like you put it out and it's, it's like, you've done nothing. You've spent all this time. You've spent all this money. Um, you've put in all this effort, put in all this heart and it's just gone because there are like 450 other albums just in the pocket world of underground extreme metal that came out in the same month. Like, not even all music. That's in music in a very narrow band. I wish I could say that I couldn't identify with that, and that sounded like an alien experience. But <laughs> it is a very intimate and familiar experience. Um, and like going, going back to what you were saying with no matter what type of metal writer you are, um, it, every, I've, I've never met a single person with a, and I can't give one either with a, a rational explanation as to why you can only write about stuff before it comes out. Like there's just this tacit agreement and that editors enforce that writers obey that publicists, uh, follow where, Albums that are already out, even if it's last week, um, are no longer newsworthy. And the only time that those albums get covered is at the end of the year, which most writers submit in September because they have to put their magazines and uh, their their they have to print their magazines. Um, but yeah, so it's just like it, everyone's in this hamster wheel of albums being out are dead that everyone just follows and no one questions. And it just keeps being that way. I've found some reasons for that. Not good reasons, but reasons. Cause, uh, 
Yvonne and I have talked about this a ton. It's something, and not not just us. That's this comes up a lot with certain types of people. That's what I'm like, saying. Everyone talks about it, but yeah. it still persists. Like Nevertheless, it's fucking insane. Because what happens when you find a record that came out? Because all this music just seems to disappear. What happens when you find a record that comes out in April? It's fucking amazing. Like, um, in particular, there is a track off of the um, the the other split that Putrescine did, which is this big thirteen minute like super proggy thing. It's like Marie wrote it specifically again for me. Um, and it's like, what happens if that song just sort of disappears to someone or they find it like three months late all of a sudden um this is where we get into a funny loop the only people who wind up talking about that stuff are things like facebook groups or like subreddits or things like that which which ironically wind up getting more consistent readership than a lot of uh music websites which is something that you don't really see until you look at metrics but like mm -hmm. the way that like a random fucking facebook meme page or something can drive listenership like mortician has over yes. forty thousand yes. listeners every month they're not good i love death metal i even like mortician even though that they're there's a bunch of like shitheads in the band but whatever it's it's extreme metal of course there's shitheads in the band um rotten scene anyway um but like how the fuck does that happen when there are like super vital bands putting out incredible music that's even getting covered but then fucking mortician has forty thousand listeners i um, mean look nobody liked mortician when i was getting into death metal you know yeah 15 years ago nobody liked they were a joke no one actually took them seriously and listened to them i never heard anyone talk about them and all of a sudden the meme page comes out and just memed them into popularity again. And people are going to try to deny that. It's true. We all know yep. it. And that, that's, what, uh, uh, that's what happened to Rick Astley. And genius that he is, he had a late career renaissance. Yeah. It helps that he's actually like a really, really good musician. Um, that people would go to his concerts to listen yeah. to the meme song and then oh shit this this guy is actually very good what the hell <laughs> but yeah it's like obviously we haven't really spoken about the music yet but it's like i i think these things especially for certain types of people are a little bit more illuminating cuz to touch on the music uh you have uh one half of really sick proggy death metal that that splits the difference between like um high-minded prog stuff and then more direct old school death metal stuff without leaning too far in either direction which is one of the things i like a lot about putrescine like you guys don't every now and again you'll have like a song that you go real like this one's guttural and stupid this is this is our iq dropper and then obviously you have like that that prog epic that you just put out that um i was i was talking with trevor i was like you plan on putting like a compilation out at some point of of some of these tracks so more people can find them right and it's like oh we haven't really we're not really and i'm like you need you need to fucking do that if this song disappears i will kill you um but then on the other side of for the split lp you have cosmo you're doing this really like expansive almost like chrome waves style um cinematic black metal where it's with there's a lot more death metal in 
those tracks than on uh your debut LP, which you you'd mentioned was a deliberate sort of like trying to bridge the two universes sonically, even just a little bit. Vocally, yes. Um, we we had actually had two of the songs written before Trevor and I even had this idea. So it, uh, like so many things about this split musically just worked out great by chance, and this was one of them that he had been just writing that way anyway. That rocks. Um, your your death growls on this were were really satisfying. Obviously, I was more used to hearing you do um, do like shrieks and stuff like that, but. Um, granted, I'm coming from the biased position, uh, held by a law, which is that death metal is the supreme music of the universe, uh, and that that which bends towards it bends towards the light of a law. Um, um, I have fun news for you, which is about a month ago, I was invited to make a death metal band with, uh, with, um, somebody else. And uh, the songs are fucking sick and I'll rocks. be doing pretty much only like, super super grunty slammy style vocals for that uh uh well maybe maybe outside of the recording you can mention some more specific names i understand if you can't <laughs> i well i know why you can't on record and i understand if you can't off record um but uh oh, no no I, I i would be happily able to got it yeah i did um god i love death metal yeah this uh this month i i got I got uh, real, real fucked real bad on the column thing because there were uh, seven really dope death metal records that came out that I wanted to cover. And like really dope. That's not just like good. That's And I had four slots. That's all mad. Had, to give, one to, had to give one to Barn though. You, you are that album was yourself. Good. You are Why yourself the trapped in the what, you can't cover them next month. Why not? Why the fuck is there such a good cosmic progressive death metal band from Idaho called Barn with an album cover that fucking sucks ass? Granted, a suck ass album cover is one way that you know that the metal is going to be good. Which you guys fucked up on. Your cover is fucking amazing for this LP. Incredible looking cover. Uh, well, that credit <laughs> must be given to Misha Mono. Who has we, successfully made it out of Russia? Excellent, great news. Yeah. Uh, we actually um, we purchased some Mishimono art for uh, the debut of this season of Death Sentence as well. We had a changeover of our logo and stuff mm-hmm. using uh, using their incredible, incredible artist. Really like impeccable taste. You use the person that we also use. That's great. <laughs> Dude, it was nuts. He had he had just posted some pieces like he will do. Yeah. Like these are available. Who wants them? And I saw this one, and it like I remember showing it to Trevor, and I was like pointing out like exactly all the themes that his picture has and how they reflect not just the content of the split, but the, the interaction between our two bands. Um, and I, I was telling Misha, I was like, this is just so insane that you didn't design this as a commission. Um, I would also be remiss if I didn't point out that my wife Kane did the text layout for the cover, which should be included in all cover praise that our album receives. It should. I mean, that's, that's part of, so this is something that, uh, Yvonne has a sneaker column over at invisible art. It's a really good column. 
Um, yeah, check it out. They just featured a really cool musician on that <laughs> uh, collection of Nikes. But um, one of the things that like Yvonne and I bonded over was partly talking about not so much that specifically, but one of the things that drives that, which is that we, we get a lot of people who are afraid to talk about things like art and aesthetic when it comes to like the world of specifically this wedge of music. We have this really annoying problem of like, especially metal types playing for a kind of respectability when it comes to talking about things where it becomes scare quotes, only the music where the people who listen to it are driven by the aesthetics, the fashion, the like all of these other interlinking components that literally every other scene in the art world fucking ever uh, also care about. Um, and what's funny is the bands who say that will be the same ones that have the cookie cutter logos that wear leather jackets and bullet belts. And they're just like, Oh no, no, this is how I dress normally. I'm not putting on a role. Um, you know, I'm always scowling just like this. Like what self-awareness things- goes a long way. One of the things that I uh, I, bond, I bonded with um, with um, it was actually an interesting conversation between Andy from Kaina and Jamila from Ithaca, where they both have very oppositional positions when it comes to like stage dress of like do you dress a certain way when you're doing a stage show? And Andy, mm-hmm. to no surprise of anyone who knows either Andy or the music of Kaina. They're very much like, I go on stage exactly how I am and I play the music. And it makes sense because one of the groundbreaking things that they were doing was they helped sort of break the contemporary post-rock black metal hybrid thing like in the early 2000s. Um, And it was this whole thing of trying to break down the barrier if you don't have to look like a fucking... 19 year old norwegian kid to to play black metal you can do all this other stuff um meanwhile jamila goes way in the opposite direction and despite playing like proggy metalcore stuff she'll put on like these really grandiloquent outfits um to become i i could i would absolutely believe that jamila wears that to the supermarket right (laughs) (laughs) She's a very outsized person. That could, that type of, you know, banquet hall dress. If she told me like, no, no, this is how I dress every day. I'm not putting it on for the stage. I would believe her easily. Yeah, it it tracks very much with her personality, but it's (laughs) like it. There, there's that like innate tie of the two. Like I remember like one of the big things that drew me. This is tying back to your record now. One of the big things that drew me to metal and prog and things like that in general was in part you're flipping through records and then you pull up you know this thing there's there's this image and sometimes it's um i know certain heshers who get mad at me over this sometimes it's that perfect kind of dog shit if you know what i mean like some metal record covers look like ass same with prog covers they look like fucking shit but in a way that tells you oh these guys are true I mean, you were just talking about Barn. That's your oh, yeah. example. They're, like, that record cover sucks in a way that tells me these guys care so much about the riffs that they don't even know what art looks like. They've spent so long working on killer fucking riffs. Um, meanwhile, like, the art that you guys picked sort of reflects that. And, again, credit 
both to Mishimono and, and to your wife for making a really good marriage of the two elements there. Um, it reflects a kind of like thoughtfulness and completeness. It tracks that something with <laughs> that you wouldn't have spent all this time to usher the record out of the gate and then give it, you know, like uh, subpar art or layout design or things like that. Like it, it feels like this was designed as a record and is being accorded as a record, which makes it really satisfying to see the amount of people that I've seen talking about it online. Because obviously you never know how this shit's going to land. No, I mean, at least for me, I come from as much of an art background as music. There's no way I could put out something with a cover that I didn't feel was the best looking thing it could possibly be. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's just to, it's like the same reason why like I won't buy like Guild and Heavy tees because I'm also coming from an apparel background and it's like I just, I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to wear it because it'll make me look like shit. No matter how note, cool the artwork is, the fit of the t-shirt sucks on my body. On and that note, Meshuggah, you can afford better t-shirts <laughs> than Guild and Heavy. I bought one because you're Meshuggah. I'm not going to not buy one. It had that flaming dude with a knife. I've got to have that. But invest in better cut out, the, cut out the image, you know, and now it's wall art. Or put it on a, on the back of your crust vest. You were saying something, Trevor? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, Yvonne really took the lead on the aesthetic on this uh, release. And when he showed me that artwork and pointed out all the little things, it was just, it was perfect. And represented exactly what we want to do and i couldn't imagine it with anything else now um and for our other one marie did the art for that and did a really good job but this was just what it had to be i mean yeah i mean and that's one of the I didn't things know that. that she did oh, that yeah. This cover? yeah yeah that's her that's so cool she also did yeah. the art on that that mesa record that right, was one right now i see it absolutely that was yeah. one where i was absolute that's i had already written the blurb for the mesa record because i just saw it on one of these compendiums of upcoming records and checked it out and was blown the fuck away I was, oh my god this is like voivodian i love that shit i, I fucking can't wait for it. her to do more of that it's so and good. then uh and then after i wrote it but before i sent it in I saw both her talking about it and then also asked Trevor about it. And he was like, yeah, that's, that's her other band. And I just decided like, I legitimately went in blind, not knowing that she was involved in it right. and was blown away. Then it was like, okay, that's just, um, to touch back on that earlier point. But yeah, I mean, that touches on another element about the way these things come together in general, that I think more people, could stand to be aware of. It's not that a lay listener necessarily needs to know this, but I think it helps enrich our understanding of the, the music and the art that matters to us is a lot of it is like the putting together of a team over a very slow period of time of all these other invisible elements that some of which you see and some of which you don't see where it's like, okay, who like imagine Iron Maiden, but without Derek Riggs doing that early art which he didn't on the first record if i remember correctly he didn't do the art and it was only from killers forward that he took over i could be wrong there but like and it's not just necessarily having that kind of 
that specific kind of iconic look because obviously Iron Maiden is a very aesthetically iconic group but just that kind of example or like you have a similar relation of art and music and Mastodon or something like that and it oh, kind yeah. of answers one of those questions of like why do some bands break through and other ones don't when the music is very good and it's because of the frustrating thing that a lot of people don't necessarily want to face which is that even when it comes to listening to an album, we're doing more than just pressing play and hearing it. Obviously, that leads to problems sometimes because there are these great goddamn albums that are just waiting in the wings. And then there's um, there's a couple Facebook groups that I'm in that do a really good job of going, look at this dog shit looking 3D CGIS art. Now press play, amazing death metal. <laughs> and I'm like, yo. Good uh, bands. Bands used to go nuts with physical packages. Like, um, I remember when uh, when Ten Thousand Days came out. Cool. <laughs> I was, you know, I was in like high school or early college. This is they were a huge foundational band for me, and my myself and my buddy Dom, because I'm from New Jersey and I have a friend named Dom. <laughs> um, he had gotten it on CD with like the pop-up goggles. Yeah. And we're just and sitting in his bedroom like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know? my, my dad called me out of uh, school because I was in, I think it was either a junior or a senior in high school, calls me out of school. Um, and actually he wakes me up by throwing something on my chest and I wake up and I'm like, what the fuck? And I grab oh. it. It's the new tool CD. And he's like, I went to Walmart. I couldn't sleep. I went to Walmart at like 3 a.m. And I bought oh, two dude. copies. I already called you out of school. And I'm like, fuck yes, dad. Um, uh, yeah, and, and like our uh, one of the editors in chief uh, for Invisible Orange is a guy that we know named John um, has not only friends, but he himself works sometimes in these like really elaborate physical packages for uh, especially older like dark metal and black metal records and stuff like that like he wrote normally he's just chipping in with liner notes and essays and interviews and stuff but then he'll like when the thing comes out and he's able to talk about it he'll be like here's one of those things that i did a, a little bit of work on and it's these crazy like that's one thing that i i'm the one of the few things I'm envious about the black metal world for, because the death metal world hasn't quite mastered the ability to like give that kind of archival love and care to some of these like records and groups that deserve attention that maybe didn't get it or did get it, but you know, deserve to be highlighted. Meanwhile, the black metal world, as much as it, that is a hotbed of uh, racism and all, all, all kinds of fun stuff. They at least, have that really strong archival sensibility and like this really strong work ethic when it comes to making like art as an object as much as it can be kind of tedious to hear people talk about live rituals or whatever they you know yeah i mean there's there's one band uh from denmark it's the dude um his his band now is called afsky he used to be in soul brood um i really like his black metal but every time he puts out a release he'll like hand make little wooden boxes that the tapes go in you know and he's just like doing this at home uh by himself there's no label support but 
because the music is wonderful and he's been at it for a long time. And again, because of the attention he puts in and he understands the way packaging can really sell a story. Of course, it all just sells out in seconds. Meanwhile, I had to find about uh, Lycathea Aflame from YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is. It's a death metal record that is uh, about elves and birds. Solid. Really I mean, good. That sounds like a really yeah. unique, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, if you're into death metal and you mention, especially the more, like, progressive and adventurous end of death metal, and you mention it to someone, they're going to go like, oh, yeah, no, that's a great record. And mm -hmm. if you mention it to anyone else, they're going to be like, I don't, what, who? Yeah. Like that? me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the big hook on it is it's like brutal death metal, but it uses major tones sometimes. Uh, you guys got to send me this name. I'll, uh, it, I got to check that out. It ends uh, with a uh, a soundscape of birds. I like to the the title is like Elvenfried or something like that. Um, and uh, I I got it wrong, but it's it's something around there. And I I tell myself it's a concept record about elves um, having fun in the woods. We'll believe it. Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's been especially exciting seeing this kind of material as, like, developmental stages, um, for you guys, uh, both, both for Putrescene and for Cosmoger, because a lot of times I, uh, I've, I've mentioned this in articles before, I'll sometimes have an editor be like, why did you spend seven paragraphs elaborating on what EPs or cover songs are or can be before talking about the goddamn record. And I'm like, well, you hired me. You know I do this, so that's on you. Like, <laughs> you know who you hired. Um, but it does touch on this thing that I think about a lot, which is that some groups use these kinds of these kinds of releases as for uh, plays to get places to get out like side material to like keep the center very clarified and very like direct and continuous. Um, sometimes it's a place to experiment with things to bring experiments back. Other times it's like it's as much a central release to them as any other kind of thing. Do you happen to, to like have a uh, and sometimes bands don't even know necessarily what a release is until some years later where they go like oh i never would have thought that that thing i fucked around with over there wound up becoming so pivotal to you know what we were doing did you guys have any thoughts about that at all when you were doing it or was it very much a like let's make a record for uh for our end we had started writing these songs uh for both splits right after we finished the full length i think a lot of them were in process before it was even released. And it was, uh, I guess, our own reaction to the more progressive direction we took the full length in from the EP, uh, especially because of Marie's influence. And we wanted to see what we could do with that. And a lot of my writing, I try to mimic her style and her writing, she tries to bring it back towards mine. And we end up with a really, really good cohesive sound. And these songs let us really you know, see how far we could push that in a way. And I think our agreement uh, going forward is that as far as like the 13 minute epic stuff with the orchestrations and viola parts, um, we're not going to have as much of that on a full length because we want material that we'll be able to play live. And uh, <laughs> there's really nothing on either of these splits that I would even want to attempt live. Uh, but <laughs> it, it, 
for us, it was, yeah, seeing what we could do with our progression and sound and how far we could take it. And I don't think the next full length is going to be any less, uh, you know, progressive experimental. It's just going to be more focused on a tighter, um, like full band live kind of approach. That kind of reminds me of the, I'm going to say a forbidden band. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the method that death spell Omega took during the period of the production of their trilogy, where they had, they had these really, really, really out there EPs. that would come between each installment of their big trilogy they would have these like like chaining the catatron and stuff like that where they'd have these like 20 to 30 minute long songs and if you were if you're a big fan you'd consider those roughly as canon as as the trilogy but then um obviously for for other listeners they're more focused on how they would take these rangy experiments and then focus them back into like five to ten minute chunks of music before we found out about all the miko aspa stuff then you know that kind of Put a damper on certain things. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely makes me not want to go listen to Paracletus, even though allegedly it is a very good record. <laughs> yep, that every now and again, every mo- most of the time, these like huge racist shitbags happen to be in bands that are really like terrible. So it's like it's not the biggest loss in the world on that end. You're like, oh, whatever. That's you know, fuck this shitbag. Other times, it's like the classic. I'll say it. Pantera fucking bumps, and I have to think about that every time that I think about how Phil Anselmo is probably a big white supremacist. Is that like probably it would be... probably yeah, <laughs> definitely? I, I am we've talked about this. the wisdom. Pantera sucks. Okay, shut up. Shut no. up. They suck so much. I we wish talk- I agreed. <laughs> we talked about this before, and. Uh... Firstly, I agree with Langdon. Pantera fucking bangs. Intensely influential. Uh, Dimebag and Vinny, two of the best to do it at their respective instruments. Um, you guys fucking yeah. creed. I don't want to hear this shit. <laughs> That's good, too. But what I, what I was going to say is a point that I think Langdon and I have, and probably Trevor, too, have, have made a lot, which is when this does happen, when you discover that something that was very resonant for you is made by a shithead, that dissonance is really healthy to sit in and, and like, you know, just soak in it. And I think the natural response is for people to immediately distance themselves and be like, well, I never liked that anyway, or that was never really good. But not only is that dishonest to yourself, it also weakens that whole struggle. Like, yeah, horrible people can make amazing artwork. They're not less human because they have bad ideas, and this is something that we need to accept and negotiate. It, it, it reminds that's, of the that's problem. So well said. It reminds Thank of you. the problem that we that especially in, um, I would say adult leftist spaces. So like more disciplined commie and anarchist spaces bring up a lot, which is that you don't really need to be scared of humanizing the Nazi. You have to because these are humans doing these things. You can't mystify it and pretend that it's some magical extra dimensional evil that makes people do these things. They are or robots who exactly. are just always going to be Nazis and they're programmed and they, you know, can't be reached. 
And it's like there, it's it's it. The world becomes a lot easier if we believe that. Now we're suddenly mm-hmm. freed of responsibility to our fellow man. We're freed of the the tensions and dialectical struggle within this world because it's just oh they're bad. We can just blank. It's it's really when you go like no, we are we're not just enmeshed in the struggle. We're permanently enmeshed. There isn't a way out. Life itself is this dialectical play of forces and like you you there isn't an escape from it like we can pretend to one but it doesn't then we get things like um italy who just elected a uh, girl girl boss mussolini um <laughs> who famously just yesterday blamed um the tensions of the world on this is a quote um financial speculators yeah i was gonna say wasn't that her her trick term yeah, as I'd say, the the Juden was. It's like financial hmm, I wonder, I wonder who you mean when you <laughs> right. say financial speculators. What Certainly, she means white Christians. Um, um, but speaking of dialectics, and to rope it back to future scene, um, I've been wanting to <laughs> make this point since we first started talking about what their music sounds like, which is this. Um, my favorite thing about future scene is that even at their Trevoriest or at their Mariest, there's always the other person very tangible in there. And uh, you can't even break it down to, um, you know, grunty versus shrieky, chuggy versus proggy, because they're both doing both of those things. And even though you can sort of tell oh, this is a more Trevor-led song or whatever, I love how they write every song together, and that's tangible in the music. Yeah, that's something yeah, that I've you. that's something I've really like, really loved watching as the development of your band has gone on from the EP to the full length to this stuff. Where, aside from for the thirteen minute epic, knowing immediately where that came from, <laughs> actually, you're wrong. What? See? Yeah. I wrote the bass for it. It was nine minutes when I sent it to Marie. It was 13 when it came back, but I wrote the bass for that. <coughs> That's not bananas. Okay. It, and it's definitely not the final product that came out, but that one was uh, collaborative. And yeah, well, I okay. well, wrote a good I, chunk of it. I, I just ate shit on that one. Okay, that even further proves <laughs> the point. Like, on the EP, it was, it was pretty clear where the two parts were and and it was exciting but one of the reasons why we wanted to cover it was like oh it feels like this has legs and can go somewhere and it's been really really cool watching you guys go to the places that it felt like you could have from the ep i mean that's sort of like that's that's one of the most fun parts of especially like noticing a band like relatively early in their life and being like oh my god i wonder i wonder what they're going to do or if they can a big part of it for me is that Marie and I have been friends for well over a decade at this point. We were in our first band together. And so we know each other and trust each other to, you know, make art together. That's going to be good. And we know how to listen to each other and how to find the best in each other and put out something that we're both really happy with. And as far as I'm concerned, I couldn't have done anything after the EP without her. And, you know, her music on her own is a lot different than what you get with Future Scene. So finding the middle there, it works out really well. People seem to like it. We like it a lot. 
And I think that's perfect. Um, but working with people that I, I trust and care about is a big part of what we've tried to do from the start. That's why working with um, Yvonne on this split worked out so well. Working with Forrest worked so well. These are people I like and trust and like their art. And it just, I think it comes through in the final product and how we were able to take such different split, like such cross genre splits that you would never particularly think of and make them feel cohesive. That's one of the things that I also liked a lot about both of these split LPs is that, and we see this a lot in, <clears throat> in like the punk and the hip hop world. Um, and even in the electronic world, come to think of it of bands that go, we fall under the same loose umbrella and we like each other's shit. And even if we don't do anything else like this ever again, why don't we just fuck around, see what, see what comes out. I mean, you remember how much crossover there was between new metal and hip hop back yeah. in the late nineties and early two thousands. Like they couldn't stop working with each other because they understood that. And yet when it comes to certain realms of extreme metal, we, we barely even get cross genre when it comes to like a bill, even though you'd think that would help fill out an audience in a certain way, which is <clears throat> one of the things I, I, the classic thing, uh, classic problem things are very good and the people who like things are often very bad um in that like metal is some of my favorite music in the world absolutely adore it and yet some of the most tedious uh weirdly pugnacious and narrow-minded people i've run into are like if on one end it's people going like no you can be as racist as you want and nothing matters it's in fact good or like, mm. if I hear that you've done one bad thing ever, I hate you. And you're like, cool, that's like how a child thinks. You, you are like 12 in the brain. Um, but then this carries through when it comes to, like, because it, it, it's not just a resistance on the part of bands or promoters. There seems to be a resistance sometimes on the part of, like, listeners or concert goers. Even though they will like all of these different things to then not want, like, no, I want like a, a focused mood to, uh, I don't know. I find that I this didn't get into prog or weird stuff in order to, to have that kind of approach. That sucks to me. <laughs> this is, this is all really new to me because <clears throat> my only experience being in bands that played live was in Shanghai and the Shanghai music scene did not have anywhere near enough bands for it to fracture. <laughs> like you would book a, a night, and then just see who else is free. There was no such thing as a single genre bill. We could get away with heavy band bills, but it would be like a death metal band, a black metal band, maybe a hardcore band, because they count too. So learning that the rest of the world didn't operate that way was a real sort of uh, you know veil off the eyes type of moment for me once I started looking into what the rest of the world says and does about heavy music. I think a big part of it, and maybe this is less present in that scene just for, you know, cultural reasons, but a lot of it that I've seen in the American metal scene, I mean, specifically here in Southern California is people wrap up so much of their identity in what they consume, whether that's, you know, you have to now go to bat for Disney because you like <laughs> Disney movies or Marvel or whatever else, um, or metalheads do it too. You know, this is this is my thing, and I have to wrap so much of my identity in it that I become 
someone who can only think in a certain way about it and it's not helpful or healthy really and it it it's especially frustrating to me because so one of my big one of the big driving things behind writing something like i'm listening to death metal was seeing the worlds of like punk and hip-hop and folk and alternative music and just rock and roll electronic music club music all these kinds of places get these really rich and really loving like personal narratives about like what this music means to a person how it affects the becoming of a person the like efflorescence of a person all these things like it's really wonderful narratives like if you care about music writing you will at some point have read horses by patty hair or by patty smith because it's fucking it's great it's it's fucking great um but then all of a sudden, when you look at metal, there's a bunch of people who, uh, I don't know, like uh, like an animated talking denim vest. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, like that's not... I love the theater of it, but like also the inability for certain people to, to acknowledge the, the theatrical component. Like, King Diamond loves NASCAR. And I don't see how there are certain people who can't wrap their head around the fact that, like... He's not, like, eating human bones in a cemetery in his spare time. He's not having fucking discourse about whether you can take, uh, like, slutty pictures in a graveyard. He's watching NASCAR, and then he's recording dope records. Like, you need to be fucking normal on some level. Right. I mean, I, I mentioned it in the, uh, in the sneaker article with Yvonne, but there was a long time where... I thought, well, I'm a metal guy. I can't be a sports guy. That's, you know, I'm more intellectual mm. than that. Sports don't interest me. And then as soon as I just let go of that notion, it's it seems so stupid. And yeah. I'm, you know, currently mm. thinking about the uh, Dodger-Padre game tonight because, you know, we're almost at the end of the season. That's what I, I care about right now. And I can, you know be the sports guy and not the archetype of that either, where it's my entire identity. On that note, I hate the owners of the Nationals. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. Sorry. You're just I'm a person who, who has many <coughs> robust interests. And even to bring it back to King Diamond, to look at, like, the fact that you wouldn't be able to look at somebody whose artistic output is what King Diamond is, and then not be able to embrace that he is passionate about like one of the most over the top sports that there <laughs> is like the, the fact I, I've learned that he likes NASCAR just now. And it makes complete sense to me when you look at how he spends his free time uh, as an artist, of course he would like something as ridiculous as NASCAR. Like it, it would be weird to me if King Diamond liked, you know, golf or cricket, but like fucking NASCAR, like obviously he likes NASCAR. And we get we get the same to to loop back to something that's come up on the show before that normally we keep our hands out of because it's it's just stupid. But there's never ending fucking discourse about YA. Does reading YA immediately rot your brain and immediately make you a Puritan, or does it uh, make you a paragon of morality? That it's fucking stupid discussion, exclusively for morons, and I don't really care to to dive into it but the existence of it sort of hits at the fact that these kinds of debates unfortunately crop up in all kinds of places which, which ignores um this is the commie in me coming out again there's a kind of loose wisdom of the masses where it's like a normal person 
understands in some way that life and the fruits of life come out of just life itself. You don't pick one little chunk and go like, no, it's just this. It's like mental health isn't just the pills you take. It's also the diet you have, the exercise, your social relations, your level of social stress and comfort. This is how like the classic question when hitting at something like if a if a trans teen is suicidal, what do you do? Uh, give them pills or get them out of their transphobic home. But then that same question is very different. If they are out of their transphobic home and they're surrounded by people who love them, you give them pills. <laughs> like, <laughs> you you don't just go like, nothing can be done. Um, but yeah, we see these like, in all kinds of places, we see these truncations of the holistic reality of like life and art like where does great extreme metal come from it comes from the entire life that surrounds the making of that thing and then people will go no it's actually only this one little bit and that's, that's, that's why so many bands can visit Helmete and make shit black metal that's almost why it well not almost that is why it's cheating when people say well you know i an intelligent human can separate the art from the artist you're then just cheapening their output yeah. And divorcing it from really any sense of meaning whatsoever. Like there's art doesn't exist in a vacuum. Even if you don't know who made it, they're still in it. And to yeah. pretend that it is just this divorced inert object. Um, I mean, you're just deluding yourself. Like the whole role of art studies. Um, and this isn't something that, to be fair, most people do, and that's that's fine, because it's... <laughs> to a normal person, I think this would come across as, like, a tedious intellectual exercise, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I just like it. And a lot of other people who study it um, academically and stuff do as well. But <clears throat> a lot of the point of art studies is specifically grappling with the question you brought up, which is, like, how, how could or did this arise, like, this work arise from this personhood what is the feedback loop there not necessarily in a judgmental way that's the judgment of that is for a different critical body and the judgment of it is totally fine that's that's absolutely the purview of this other critical body but this other first one is like how do these interact how do they how do they come from each other and yeah whenever someone goes well i just separate the art from the artist it's like you're just skipping that first part these are really interesting and toothsome questions that can give us a lot of insight for other things going forward. And you've gone, I am too lazy, <laughs> which yeah, it's just a, it's a shallow way to consume something to just listen to it or, or watch it at face value and not dive deeper to see where it came from and what's connected to it and uh, where it leads in turn. Yeah. That's. And so... I think, uh, you know, this will make sense as to how I ended up a Marxist, but I've always enjoyed things more when you can be critical of them and really understand them more completely. I don't think it cheapens anything about it. I think it uh, it can only really make it better generally when you uh, when you can really understand the full context and where it came from and everything surrounding it. And it doesn't change the art itself, but your understanding of it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a frustrating kind of thing to get into with certain people that 
<clears throat> um, that specifically think that critical comments mean that you dislike something rather than you're trying to grapple with and i think anyone who's dealt with like grief will actually understand this for maybe a weird parallel but like when someone you care about passes you're not just trying to think about or you're not just sort of compelled to think about the good about them you're trying to think about all of them because you don't get any of them anymore and mm -hmm. so part of part of the task of grief is i want to know and remember the full personhood of this person and that give as you mentioned that gives you certain insights about like you know where did where did these certain negative things come from maybe did they then dovetail into this other like this other gracious component of them that maybe they wouldn't have had if not for that or you know, the, all the the complex shape of things you can't really witness a thing as a complex shape if you are now chopping off the bits that complicate it where it came from um uh, I hate to do this, but speaking of uh, things that are beloved by people with very dogmatic opinions, it is time for us to play a tabletop role-playing game. That's right. Uh, our friend Will uh, is absolutely the whipcracker of the group. You need one, otherwise they fall apart. So we do actually quite appreciate you, Will. Um, so yeah, this was also a good discussion. It's always a pleasure to have you guys on. I'll, I'll, I'd gladly have you guys on uh, anytime uh, in the future. Uh, unsurprisingly, Trevor and I get on uh, quite well. That's nuts, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> and Yvonne as well. Um, we're going to close out with uh, a track each from the from each of your bands, if that's okay. I would yeah. be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't I don't want to like pick one and then not highlight the other. That just seems rude. So um, you'll find out when when you're listening to this uh what tracks i picked i don't know right now i'll, I'll figure that out during the editing process but yeah um these are tracks from both putrescine and cosmoger from their uh now out uh split lp desolate tides <laughs> 